Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the best of the run home with Joel and Fletch. What a show we had and what about the recall from this man, Steve from Gunnada. Check this out. Now I'm looking forward to this. It's almost like a magic trick, Brian. Steve from Gunnada who tipped off by the spa man. He said, mate, trust me, you can throw a date at him in the last, well, since 1960 to about 2010. He'll tell you the number one song on that day. He'll tell you who won the grand final that year in the National Rugby League or the New South Wales Rugby League back in those days. Who won the Melbourne Cup that year? Yep. And he, he can also tell you the moon phase at the time and what day of the week it was. This is awesome. So let's get Steve from Gunnedah to test this out. I did ask him this off air just to get him warmed up. Steve from Gunnedah, come in. How are you, Steve? Good, thanks, mate. The cousin right, of the right, spa right. man and the nephew of the great uh, Bobby Bishop, Captain Bob Bishop. Uh, yeah, what have um, you got, uh, Stevie? How's things at Gunnedah? Good, mate. I can operate outside those dates, but the music, the number one hits, I mean, the recent stuff, I'm not too familiar with. So um, we'll just stick with the 50-year gap while we're in this segment. Is that okay? Yeah, yes. yeah, of course. Perfect. Of course. Perfect. Okay, so let's, and I did ask you this off air, Steve, so you've got a bit of a head start with this, but just to get things going, my birthday is the 18th of September, 1978. The number one song that day was, which eluded me when Brian asked me the question, was what, Steve? You're the one that I want, believe in you, John and John Travolta from the Grease soundtrack. Would that so be that year was, was Grease or Boney M or BG. It was Grease. You're the one that I want. Okay. And then my birthday, the 18th of September, 1978, was what day of the week? Monday. Right. And was there, what sort of moon phase was happening at that time? Any idea? Probably full a couple of days later or, or the next day or something. Very close to full moon. All right, Stevie. Let's go. I'm going to go to my, me. 12th of April, 1974. What day was that? Right. Good Friday. It was. It was a good Friday, like Easter weekend. It, you, you are spot on, right, and right? it is because it's never fallen. My birthday's <laughs> never fallen again. Who won the premiership? 1974. 74 Eastern Suburbs. Yeah, they did. Melbourne Cup. Uh, I think big. In fact, both those Eastern Suburbs were one first of two on the trot, and Think Big first of two on the trot. Like two <laughs> okay, we're going here. Now, hang on, we need to know the song, your song, bro. Oh, yeah, what was song my song? 1974. My Cuckoo but Alvin Stardust. Oh. Big Clam Rock. Do you know the song? Yeah, I do. I do. All right, Mitch wants to know, Stevie, Mitch wants to know February 10, 1979. Saturday. That's, um, that's pretty, uh, 79. But um, it wasn't sort of moon wasn't full, but um, yeah, it was kind of full moon. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't full. It was um, full. Yeah, I'm close, pretty close, but um, near about the eleventh, I think. 12. Very close to full. Nearly close. Okay. Too good. Who won the comp? Um, Melbourne Cup that year, Hyperno. Actually, first NRL Grand Final I ever watched on television that year, '79. It was um, Can- uh, St George beat Canterbury. Uh, okay, another one here. Come through. My birthday, 22nd of September, 1980. Oh, it's Monday. 
Um, Don't worry about the moon phases. Just yeah. tell us the day of the week and, and, and the number one hit. And... Sorry, Norris. Who won the comp? Was grand final. Oh, um, was a, oh, very close. Canterbury. Was a grand final was about that that time of the year. Yes. Canterbury. East. Okay. Now, the next one, February 2nd, 1970. Monday. Um, that was from Budster. Budday, you said. That, that was um, John Farnham singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Wow. Okay, this is gonna. This is going to. This is gonna. I reckon test you. Thirty first of December, nineteen seventy one. Friday. Um, John Lennon's Imagine was number one. John Lennon's Imagine was number one on a Friday. You were born on a Friday. Did you know that? True story. True story. <laughs> Steve, Steve, have you ever thought about using your powers for like Lotto or Powerball or something like that? Can you can you predict? Can you predict the future? Predict. It's all in the past. If I, if I could go back and pick all the Melbourne Cup winners, I would, but I can't predict future. Oh, gosh. We need a sports almanac. How did, how did you know you had this gift? How did um, it all come about? No, I just wanted to memorise stuff. One year, I, um, I was just driving to school one morning, or riding, riding to school. Someone was driving me. I was 10 year old, and I, I figured out what, um, what day of the week, the 1st of January 2000. This was back like 1979. And... Um, I just figured out there's patterns with the calendar. You know how many days in a month. It's as simple as, as mental arithmetic or times tables. So if you count the date four weeks from now, in a 31-day month, 31 minus 3, that's 28 days. So I, I did it like, say, the 1st of January each year. So I start that as, as like the starting point. Wow. Steve, you're too like, good. Yeah. All right, Steve, I'm just going to give you a quick rapid fire. 1965 and 1968, the Melbourne Cup winners. Go. 65 was Light Fingers, 68 was Rain Lover. Who won the comp in 1977? Uh, oh, that was a tight St. George. I think we Parramatta. There was a tie and they had to replay it. Oh, gosh. Uh, Bulldog Brad was born on the 2nd of May, 1974. What day was he born, Bulldog Brad? Thursday. Again, he was at uh, Mike Tree was number one. I think, or Seasons in the Sun. I okay, Terry Jackson that week. Oh, this is good. Steve, can you count Thank cards you. at the casino? <laughs> No, no, no I'm is not there, there. Is there any I way I can it. tap into this? Could I learn this sort of stuff? You could, uh, off the air, and it'll take a, take a bit of explaining, but uh, I could do it. Don't want to wait All right, time. I've got one. Da- okay, page three, girl, Daily Mirror, <laughs> 1978. 78, what oh, Okay. That's good. Steve, right, you're too good. 78 was a good year, though, good music. It was a good year. Page three was a good year too. Somebody's oh, here asking. It might not be your forte, Steve. So if it's not, it's not. But somebody wants to know who won the 800 metres at the Olympics in 1968 on October 14th. Oh, I don't know the, the runner, but um, that year rings a bell. Was it, um, was it Monday the 14th? Was it Monday? Um, Bob Beamer was, was the long jump record, but I don't know. I can't, the runner... No, that's good. Um, that, that, that gonna, doesn't I think, matter. Hang on, I, I might do it. I might be... You know, is it Ralph Dubell? Is that what you think? <laughs> Would it be Ralph Dubell? Pretty sure it is. No, I'm not familiar with that. Have you ever been on a game show, Steve? I don't know. Australians have won gold medal in the pool at just about every Olympics. George Fraser went up to Perkins. Who was it? Yeah, we've won gold medals. We almost set records in the pool at every Olympics. Well, you've set a record as being the smartest mm. listener we've ever had, Steve. Definitely. I need to tap into this, Steve. Let's um, 
Let's meet up. Let's reach out and meet up, and uh, let's just yeah. swap skills. Yeah, right. What do you get off of him? I've got some things in my back pocket. Yeah, you got Steve nothing. O. Steve, don't take that meeting up. Steve <laughs> from Gunnada, mate, this That's has been brilliant. You've, the board has melted well, down. Gibbo, give Gibbo's one. Melted. Oh, Gibbo, what's yours to see it out? Uh, 8th of February, 96. 96. Thursday, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I Thursday. Late night Thursday. I can remember that too. Who won the call? Um, in Australian number five. Oh, probably that, that week's probably a wonder war, but Oasis. Oasis, oh, yep. 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 97. What about 97? Uh, okay, the 18th of January, 1997. What day was it? Who won the comp? Uh, Saturday, I think Silver Chairs, or Savage Garden to the Moon and Back was number one that week. Yes. Um, 97, NRL won, won by Newcastle Knights. In fact, the, the Super League broke away that year. Um, Who won the Super League one? I, I don't know the Super League. I followed the NRL. Yeah, oh. good boy. <laughs> good boy. Is this really, is it, this might, actually, this might be James, might... James Packer. <laughs> hey, uh, Steve from Gunnada, mate. Uh, the spa man tipped us on to you, and he was absolutely right. You've nailed the lot. So just, uh, it's outstanding. It's been great to have you on the run home with Joel and Fletch. We'll chat another time. We will do, mate. I'll catch up with you. Good Thanks, on you, Steve. Stevie. Stevie from down there in Gunnada. What a great fella. That's How smart sk- is that? That is a good skill. It's the run home with Joel and Fletch. Welcome back to the best of the run home with Joel and Fletch. So much NRL news still floating around. You'll enjoy this. It's an NRL news update. Subscribe to SEN League on YouTube and the SEN podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. He's coming after you, Brian. He was looking, oh, he was looking at the sign. He's no, going. He's looking at you. I'll track them down. Sorry, just before you get to the NRL, <laughs> we're two and a half hours into a rugby league show. Haven't spoken about it. Um, hi, uh, Joel and Fletch. Hey, Fletch, it was actually Tony Packard up the Windsor Road from Borkham Hills and let me do it right for you, not Tony Windsor. Sorry. That's David from Old Toon Gabby. Tony Ooh, Packard. That's it. That's Tony it. Packard because he had the car dealership at Windsor. <laughs> well, let's stay out there at Windsor. A lot of the Windsor Wolves juniors go and play for Penrith. Uh, did a lot of Windsor here. I don't think Jerome Luai did. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was a St Mary's junior, but let's do this. Uh, Panthers officials, this is according to Christian Nicolucci in the Sydney Morning Herald, the Panthers prepare to up the Luai offer. Which mm. I like this because just puts a bit of a positive narrative on it heading into the new season. You don't want mm. Jer- Jerome upset as you look for four. Could they possibly get four, Brian? Oh, of course they can. Four. Of course they can get four. Well, no one. There was. We thought we couldn't go back to back. Four. Four. They smashed that. And then they said, "There's no way they'll get three. Four. Did I ever tell you about? The and if they get four, we're talking about five. The minute mile. Four minute mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger Bannister. No one could do it. No one, no one did it. it. Now everyone breaks it. How many of that next year, once it was broken, how many of that next year broke it? 26. It was, yeah, it was something like that. I don't know, was, was it? Yeah, 35 or 20. It was heaps. Talk about breaking. I think Hallway's going to break my window. <laughs> oh, no, he was after me. Yeah, that was good. You were the one going for him. Yeah. Then he's coming here and he's paying all attention to the signage. He goes, I can find. He, he's going to come after he's me. He's going to go down to, I tell you, he's going to get in Cronulla. He's going to get one of those hectic Chinese spy balloons yeah. just on the top of your house. <laughs> Please. Boy, he's like. I was here for all of the interaction from the start, and you both were fired up towards him. But then, as soon as he comes over here, you was, it was singing a different song. Was that a bit like yeah, we had Justin Langer on the show? <laughs> oh, a little bit, yeah. It's... Yeah, but he explained himself. Yeah, but then, I mean, doesn't like ScoMo. Nah, but oh, I, I was a bit worried. So I went into full Dale Carnegie mode. Yeah, friends. He's not my friend. Uh... And then he plays nine holes, and he sprayed it to the right. And then he said he doesn't. He goes, I don't count. 
Come on, Hall, mm. Sorry, get back to uh, get back to your updates. Okay, the Panthers officials are prepared to increase their offer to Jerome Luai of a contract longer than two years to ward off big money interest from West Tigers. Three-time premiership winner has paid a personal... Well, he was paid a personal visit by the Tigers coach, Benji Marshall, and last week met with Canterbury Supremo Phil Good. Why do we know this? Why do we know that he met with Benji? Why do we know that he met with Gus? The Panthers' offer is reportedly worth around 850000 a season for two years. Mm-hmm. Now, this, I think, gives them a chance. Some 300000 less per season than the offer on the table from the West Tigers, which is four years and includes the chance to play halfback. It's not written into the contract, but there's no Nathan Cleary at the Tigers, which we're reading between the lines there. A third year in the Panthers' offer, which would take Luai through until the end of 27, which happens to be the same year that Cleary is up for renewal, uh, might just be enough to convince him to stay put. 850 versus what a reported 1.1, is it? Two, I think. 1.2. That's what they're getting up to. Um... If he gets that extra year... That, that extra year is significant. Yep. What do you think? I think... Taxman takes half. Manager takes some. I, I just think that... Reading between the lines when Ivan Cleary said... Yeah. You know, when he came out and, and said, I don't think... Uh, he's never... He's not proven at the at that level of running a team. Yeah. It was a bit of a, you know, backhanded compliment, mm. I thought. So and he's a great player. Uh, is George, is George, you keep looking no. down my shoulders. <laughs> no. Is George going to hit me over the head no. with a three-wood? No, George would be in, the, in his car by now listening to the program, which he paid attention to see who we are. So hope you're enjoying the call, the run home here with Joel, uh, with Jimmy Smith and Fletch. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Smith filling in for Joel He's today. Right. You'd flog George. <laughs> I'm not worried about George. Oh, I'm worried. Yeah. I'm, oh, right. Mate. They're Brian, powerful. Oh, I reckon he'd be powerful. Mate. No, he's not. He's only playing nine holes. Mate, that's why he he's drives busy. A he's powerful. He drives a jag. That's right. If he, he's had, busy. A, if he had a no. Range Rover, he'd be the I can't believe he's going after me. When yeah. you were the great uh, protagonist. protagonist. Yeah. Antagonist, not protagonist. Was that the same? Antagonist, pr- protagonist. Antagonist is the anti. Protagonist is we're all pro for. Yeah, I think you were going for him. I wasn't going... Oh. You, okay, Fletch. You, I didn't go there for was it. a couple of, you know, if we were, uh, if we had the dump button on, you, we would have had to use no, it a couple of times I when just you first said, had a crack at him. I just said, I said, put your glass away, <laughs> oh, and no. he was up there for fifteen minutes, <laughs> and he came around, <laughs> and then he came over <laughs> just pointing at me. I, I've seen this interaction from the start and finish, I'll, and I'll flog him. <laughs> okay, for the listeners who want a bit of English education, protagonist is the leading character or one of the major characters in a play, film, novel. An advocate or champion of a particular cause or idea. Pro. Thank you. Pro. The antagonist. A person who actively opposes or is hostile to someone or something, an adversary. He turned to confront his antagonist. I was... George... George was the antagonist. Yes, George turned to confront his antagonist. Uh, What's going on with the West Tigers now, Sugar? I heard something's going on with Isaiah Papali'i. Ah, this can't happen. West Tigers star Isaiah Papali'i is at risk. Of becoming collateral damage, damage rather, as the hunt for Sydney-bound Warriors wrecking ball. Adam Fanua Blake gets serious. It is understood the Warriors will be seeking a top-line player, as they should, Brian, as part of a potential trade deal in return for granting Fanua Blake an early release so he can join a new NRL club in 2025. So they're saying swapsies. Well, Isaiah, back to the Warriors. Yeah, you've got to get something back. It's, it wouldn't be like for like because it's hard to find an Adam Fanua Blake out there, but... The game has been awash with rumours in recent days that the names heading the Warriors' hit list include... See, this is good recruitment, Brian. It really is. Like, this is a good list. Papali'i, Stefano Otokamanu, Viliame Kikia, and Jaden Sua. We like all those four, don't we? Mm -hmm. 
The, oh, the Warriors, that's who they've they've got a target on. Well, if he's been linked to those clubs, Stefano and Papali at the West Tigers, Viliame Kikau at the Bulldogs, Sorry, St. George Illawarra's Jaden Sewer. Okay, that's just made up. Who, who wrote that? No, no, this is this is uh, been reported by. Is this uh, Nicolucci? Nicolucci in, in the City Morning Herald. Okay, of, it makes sense. Like it, it does make sense. Of those players, former Warrior Papali'i seems to be the one getting the most attention, which is probably due to the fact that he appears the most likely player on the list that both parties would agree yeah. on. Yeah, yep. I mean, you would take that, wouldn't you? For most of those clubs, you get AFB, your club, Tigers, for a Papali'i. Oh. I don't know. I thought t towards the back end of the year he's find his feet. Yeah, Papali'i. What about well the Dragons? Jaden Sewer, edge back rower for a middle forward. That's the only thing I smell a bit. It doesn't pass the sniff test. Their edge back rowers, Isaiah Papali'i. At, at, at the price, and purely at the price, I, I, I think it's a risk. Yeah, I, I do. I do think it's a risk. It's good as a Warriors fan, though. You just you just want to see that the club's trying to do something to get something. Oh in no, return. no, 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 that's right. But yep. I, I'm saying for the West Tigers, where they're at at the moment, surely there must be a, a young front rower coming through the Warriors. If you get it wrong, if if you get a player who who hasn't he had he's had a terrific career, no doubt about that, and he's an awesome player. I love how who? he plays Fanua Blake. Yeah. But he, ha he hasn't had the consistency of, say, someone like a Payne Haas. And you're paying similar dollars to get him. Mm. That, that's my only concern. And if I'm the West Tigers, who can't make another single error, yep. I, I, okay. I, I, I wouldn't do it. All right, you've got 1.2 1, 1 in the cap. As good as he can be, right? Sugar, you're putting your hat on again, your West Tigers yep. recruitment hat. You've got, I've got 1.2 for you. Yep. I've got Adam Fanua Blake, who says, yes, I'll accept, or Jerome Luai. It's up to the Tigers oh, to choose. Oh, Jerome, him. every day of the week. You're taking Jerome Every, every single day of the week. Okay. All right, there you go. And, and you know what? If I'm Adam Fadil Blake too, I'd, I'd be. Yeah, I. No, nah, it's a risk. I think that, that they can't. You can only make so many mistakes, and that is risking a mistake. You're paying paying half dollars to not get a player, and this is not an Adam Fadil Blake. This is anyone else who would fill the same void, the same sort of uh, numbers. It's a risk. Right? Not but for there's me. not there's n there, I haven't never seen a Payne has. Like player, and I don't think I ever will. No, no, that, that's right. So but, but you're paying it, those types of dollars. I know, but they're probably got him cheap. But, but I'm saying Adam Fennell Blake's worth a million dollars. I think he's worth a million he's dollars. He's worth a million dollars at his best. If, if, you, if you're guaranteed to get that season you had last year yep. for the next four years, absolutely. That's, right. He's worth every single penny. He's a gun. But, so you, but are you promising you're going to get that, Brian? Uh, you, well, there's some of those clubs that you read out. They're not in a position to find out. They, they've, got to, they've got to get a big scalp. Yeah. For the fans and for other players, to get other players to come over there. If you're a young halfback and you're playing behind Adam Fanua Blake... Okay, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you that if I was Adam Fanua Blake and I had to choose between the three, because he is a strong personality by all reports, you've got to go to the Dragons. You've got Shane Flanagan, an old hardhead. The other two are rookie coaches. Yeah, but I'd be going to Canterbury. There's more upside for Canterbury, I think. Better, yeah. Well, it's a better, that, it's a saying that, he thrived under a rookie coach, Webster, so that, that probably... Debunks what I'm saying. There may be Serraldo. Anyway, we'll see how it plays out. It is a watch this space. Uh, you can also see us on YouTube. Search Joel Fletch and subscribe. Well, that's it for the... Uh, we're going to miss out on the Schnitt Sports Update. Um, we can get onto that tomorrow, I think, or maybe later on in the show. Later we've on the got, show, yeah. We've got Caro coming up, Brian. Adam Mildrum, yep. who is right behind the ghost train.
Welcome back to the best of the run home with Joel and Fletch. It was one of the best true crime Tuesdays. We had the double header. We started off with Toby Dow and Edzie, Dean Edza, relating to the ghost train. The boys are here. How are you, gentlemen? Good boys. How are we? Outstanding. We're going, dude. Oh, Chris just walked in. <laughs> yes, Chris. <laughs> one of the greats. Okay, so just recap. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the. We're just live on. We're just live on there. Yeah. <laughs> Go well, Chris. Uh, let's um, bit of background, sugar, about so, okay. the Lunar Park. So we are featuring train. the Ghost Train documentary at the moment, which is on Netflix, started on the ABC, and it's absolutely exploded in the states. Where I think you'll find it's number one on Netflix at this moment. I think you'll find that. You'll need to check uh, Fletcher's nineteen ninety four book of facts to check that. But what happens is the story starts, and I've only seen the first episode, and I, I look forward to seeing the end of it, where, unfortunately, four kids from Waverley High School yep. have found themselves at Luna Park. They board on this train, this ghost train, and they're never to be seen again. Yep. Now, a, a person who was supposed to be in that cohort that particular day is right here with us today, Dean Edzer. Yes. Who is the partner not partnering crime, it's a play on words, but with <laughs> Toby Dow. Yes, okay. Oops. So, Dean, who we originally got into True Crime Tuesday, nothing to do with this. No. Because Dean's the son of Hollywood George. Correct. Who's got plenty of stories to tell. And we may get to those if we have time. Firstly, Toby Dow, good afternoon to you. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Brian? G'day, Topes. In fact, <laughs> before we get on to Dean, because um, you sort of teased us here, Brian, um, Chum texts through. He says, hey, Fletch, what bread is best to use? I've now got a rash and very, very itchy on the boys downstairs. Yeah, it's, it's white bread. He said, I only had whole grain in the cupboard. Ah, uh, it doesn't work. He said, I think that was the problem. That is the problem, chum. <laughs> it's got to be white. Take the crust off, dab it in a little bit of water and just mould that bastard. So why did you suggest that Toby was some kind of authority on said subject? <laughs> yes, because Toby comes in here. Toby's known for dropping a little bit of bread down the duds. <laughs> in the old days. Is he a bread dropper? Yeah, in the old days. Uh, anyway, let's talk, I'm going to talk about bread dropping. Okay, dropper. well, get off the toaster. He's a bread dropper. Okay. Let, let's go to Dean Edson. So, Ed's. Let's talk about you. You were in, not involved, but they were all your mates, those poor, those poor kids. Yeah, unfortunately, back then, it was 1979, and all the kids, like everywhere, I suppose, you, you all used to congregate at the one bus, depending on where you lived, and you, that's what happened to us. We um, we used to get the, bu the bus outside of Franklin's down at Rose Bay. Black and gold, never folds. Yeah, and um, so we all used to congregate out there and, and get the bus to Waverley, and um, obviously we became friends. A lot of us all around the same age, you know, we were in year seven and eight when this happened, so it was back in 1979. But, uh, yeah, there was Michael Johnson, uh, Seamus Ray Hilly, Jonathan Billings and Richie Carroll. And unfortunately, um, Jason Holman was there as well. And he it was one of the mates off the bus and, at Waverley. And him and I were in year seven at the time. And the mm. other boys were in year eight. But because we were sort of always travelling to school and to and fro, and we played in the same footy teams and yep. cricket and stuff. Um, and then, unfortunately, also, too, there was a lot more people invited. So there should have been probably about 20 or 30 there. Um, not saying that that would have been the fatality, the end result, but uh, poor Jason, because they were the, he was the odd man out, there was five, there was two to a cart in the actual wow. ghost train ride. So they lined up two, um, Richard and Jonathan and then Seamus and Michael, and then Jason didn't have anyone to ride with, so he was the last one in. And as that occurred, and the story will unfold a bit later, but as that occurred, the flames, as the doors opened, they're quite heavy doors at the ghost train, and as they opened with the bumper bar, the bumper bar of the car, 
the flames just shot up everywhere and the attendant thank god grabbed jason around the shoulders and neck and just dragged him out of the cart wow oh, so, so so the kids all the other four kids went in before him before him and so he okay so he yeah. reacted to the flames but unfortunately too there was another family there um the godsons and they um there's a story there as well the mother jenny actually asked them it was getting a bit late at night and they asked them if they wanted to have a drink or an ice cream and they all wanted a, an ice cream. So she said, well, I won't go on the ride and I'll go, oh. over, I'll, I'll go and get the ice creams. And the two young kids and the husband um, entered into the... They entered into it actually first. Oh, and then yeah. the boys were in last. So Jason was the last person that actually uh, saw it all happen in front of him. And, you know, it absolutely wrecked him. You know, there was no coming back to school and any of that, that scenario oh, yeah. he, he had the rest of that time off and was never really the same since and, did, you, don't, and you don't blame him for that sorry Dan, did he get burnt did he no no he he actually because the the flames were there and they came out of he could see them it all going on and happening in front of him but um luckily the attendant was onto it and he just grabbed him when the doors open it was a split second if those doors shut he's he's in there yeah. but the, another strange thing too is and you'll probably see it um in the documentary they had an aerial view of a map of where they actually found the bodies and Richard had actually had the right idea to try and exit. So they were the, the people that were actually in the actual ride at the time mm. and going around and getting scared in the ghost train, they actually, some of them got out. Oh, wow. Um, Richard, they found his body quite a fair bit away from where the actual other boys were. They all stuck together. Um, but they did actually t get some survivors out of there. Can I ask you, Ed's... Were you going to go? Why, yeah, why, yeah. Why, why didn't you go? Yeah, so basically mum uh, rang Mary Carroll, Richard's mum, and because the invite went around everywhere. It wasn't just a, you know, it was, a, it was sort of like whoever could go. And it was the first time that, you know, being 12, 13, that we were allowed to go out. And it goes that I wasn't allowed. So mum rang Mary Carroll up and said, look, I hear your eldest son's going to be chaperoning the boys to, to the Lunar Park. And uh, she said, no, that's not right. She said... They're all going on their own for the first time. So mum came home, dad said... Absolutely. So was that, was that you telling a porky so you could go? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, we're all telling porkies, yeah. um, which we were good at at 12 and 13. Yeah. Oh, so you each tell yeah. mum and dad, oh, yeah, so-and-so. Yeah. So, no, knowing so, you couldn't go by yourself. Yeah. yeah, so there's no way, you know, my old man had just said no, no way in the world. Anyway, so, yeah, so basically I got stopped from going and quite a few others did too, you know, being parents of 12, 13-year-olds. Yeah. And Waverley College back then too was a little bit wild, so... Mm. Uh, yeah, it was. It was basically a, the answer was no. Wow. But what was life after at Waverley like? Because my son goes there now, as you know. Yeah. Well, we're going there now to the presentation night, uh, graduation night. Yeah. There's a plaque up the school still now with the names of the yeah it's guys lost. What What was it like, like the day after? And well, back then we had the the 95 percent of the teaching staff were all brothers, so there weren't many day teachers. So the brothers did a really good job. We were, you know, they had to deal with. A lot of kids that were shattered, obviously, because all of their, they just lost their mates. And um, they did spend a lot of time trying to get, you know, guide us all through. But I feel, so the sorriest I feel is for Jason Holman because mm. he had to not only, you know, see it, but um, he's had to live with it the rest of his life. We sort of got on with life, but I think it would be very difficult for him. Ed's how long after the tragedy did people start asking questions because i know we're seeing it now retrospectively with yeah. with this uh, netflix doco but was was rumors around that time saying oh it was deliberately lit or were you for a week or two weeks what was going on well as kids obviously we we're only 12 and 13 yeah. we didn't really know too much but 
um, what, how it all panned out was that the police and the, the police minister in charge of the actual investigation, he, he said it was an electrical fire within 24 hours. So they all started to get a little bit, you know, people outside of the circle because there was a few main people that were running the investigation and they said, well, how could you determine that it was due to an electrical fire? And it's, it's now they've got on the docker, you'll see, that they actually had fire, the fire and the photos and the actual lights, they had the, all these old carnival lights that went around a lot of the rides back in Luna Park. And they've got these old photos that you can actually see all of the lights still on and all of the flames still shooting out of the ride. So the, it couldn't have been an electrical fault because if it was, it would obviously, the, there'd be no power to those lights and it would, the, you know, you wouldn't have been able to see them on. So that sort of, you know, it, it raised a lot of eyebrows um, and the police in charge actually started to interview people that were there and adults and different people that were at the scene and found out that, um, yeah, they found out that it was actually a lot of kerosene obviously involved and then they found that there were bikies there that had actually done it uh, and just they had really, um, the problem with it was they were meant to light the fire after it had actually shut down. So they were trying to basically burn Luna Park down so that from a development point of view they'd be able to get in and build apartments and do what they wanted to do. So if they were doing that, why the ghost train? What what was the... They never ever got to no. that, but I think, you know, the building back then, a lot of the building went up pretty quickly too. It was all different flammable... Oh, yeah, it was all the old timber. Yeah, old timber and flammable materials and all of the things that came out to scare you were all very flammable as well. But uh, they said that the bikies that were involved were linked to Abe Saffron. And who was? Uh, well, Abe Saffron was the Mr. Big of the Cross back in those times, in the back in the seventies, and uh, until he passed. But he ran most of Kings Cross. Would have your old man ever come yeah. across paths? Yes. With him? Yeah. And look, the, we, even with Abe Saffron too, um, I think ten of the large commercial buildings that he owned all ended up burning to the ground. So, wow. So he was 10 for 10 on lighting fires. Do you think maybe the reason why you weren't... And that was proven, by the way, was oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you reckon the reason why you weren't allowed to go might have been... Look, um, you know, there were a lot of different people involved in it. And, and if you watch the actual documentary, which is interesting to a point, I mean, it's sad for all of us that were there and we knew that, you know, they were mates of ours. But it's interesting to see the back side of the story and what was involved and why they did it. And a lot of it had to do with powerful people in government, police, commissioners, and a high court judge. Oh, yeah. So yeah. there was a lot of, um, yeah, there was a lot of interest in it and a lot of covering up. They wouldn't interview, they wouldn't interview a lot of people um, about it because they had too much information. Welcome back to the best of the run home with Joel and Fletch. More on the ghost train here with Caro Meldrum-Hanna. You would have seen the high-hitting documentary in recent times on Netflix, The Ghost Train. Have a listen to this. Yes, look, it was actually through my the producer I made it with who ha had a good friend who knew Martin Sharp, the uh, late Australian artist, and who was encouraging us, look, if you're going to do another exposed series, you've really got to have a look at the fire at Luna Park in 1979. It's this dreadful event. It's unresolved. The police quickly put it down to an electrical fault within a handful of hours, but there were all these other witnesses there who were saying different things. And the families feel, well, several of them, that there was a, a great injustice. So we had a bit of a scratch around, and it actually began by trawling through Martin Sharp's materials. He kept all these sorts of cassette recordings, tape recordings. 
He recorded his conversations with people on the phone or when they came to visit him at his home. He had these amazing contacts and connections, probably because of his stature as, as such a well-known artist. And he, he, he gathered all of this material and that was a big launching pad for us. That the, 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 the massively hard task was actually tracking down all these witnesses and people that were at Luna Park in June of 1979, four decades later, and, and getting them to talk about what they saw, what they heard and what they remembered and whether they were called to the inquest. So that, so that was huge because, you know, people marry, they change their names, they move. Um, and also asking the families to, to sit down and, and go through it again with us, many of whom, like Jenny Godson, I mean, she's just unforgettable and totally heartbreaking. The mum who lost her husband and her two little boys, just she watched them die in front of her. Um, you know, getting their approval and their permission not only to tell the story but to sit down and, and go back through those incredibly dark days. Um, it, it was a really big journey, and I've got to be honest, it, it, it has left quite an, an imprint on me, this one, um, it, for all of us who made it, yeah. Yeah. Cara, did you know before you actually started getting, like, investigating into it, had you heard of, um, I suppose, the cover-up? Because it was not common knowledge, but there was always rumours. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, the fire occurred before I was even born, guys. So I really hadn't heard much about it at all when it was suggested to me and the team that we should look at it. So I came to it very cold. And I would just, you know, ask people in my life, my parents or my family, hey, what do you remember of this? This dreadful fire in Luna Park, seven people died. And they said, oh, yeah, everyone I asked. Oh, yeah, that, I'm sure that was an electrical fault. That's right. That's, that, that's what it was. It was an electrical fault. So that theory really stuck that the police had put out, it really stuck with people and it, it, it diverted people's attention away from what other possibilities could exist. But it didn't take us long to realise, whoa, there were these witnesses who saw bikies there that night. There were witnesses who smelt kerosene or some sort of an accelerant inside the ride um, when the, little, the fire had just started um, and later when they were running in trying to rescue people. Um, and, and then it just gathered momentum. And it, then even after the show, we broadcast the show, more witnesses came forward that the police had never spoken to um, that said they also saw bikies there that night and smelt some sort of accelerant. So, look, to answer your question in a short way, I've just done it in a long way. No, I really didn't know about, the, about what seems to be a cover-up. That's the allegation. Caro, there was a pretty... Um telling statement i'm only early into the series and it's got me i just haven't had time to properly get into it properly but where i think it was jason who says to you that we've had all this information or maybe it was vice versa the other way around but we haven't been able to achieve anything what makes us think we can change something from there do you recall that part of it yeah yeah absolutely that was that's right at the beginning actually you haven't got very far. No, 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 I'm early, very it, it early. It was early on. Yeah, it was early on he did say that. Because Jason, well, Jason went there to Luna Park that night with his four best mates. They're all 12, 13 from Waverley College in Sydney's eastern suburbs. And it was their first night out without their parents. You know, you can imagine, you, you'd remember how momentous that was when you were a kid and you got your first night out without your parents around. You're being trusted to go out and have fun. And he went there with his four best mates and he was the only one to come home alive. Wow. And he watched them go up in flames inside that ride. So incredibly traumatising. He was 12. And 
he went on to have a long career, Jason, in television. Um, I think it was at Channel 7 for years. And he tried himself to try and make some sort of a film or a documentary, but it would overwhelm him, the emotion and the intensity and, you know, a bit of survivor's guilt, I guess, too. It was too much for him. So in that first early meeting with him, you know, he was musing, I've tried to do this. I, I haven't got very far. Maybe you guys can um, because you're not so closely connected to it. Um, and we didn't know where we'd get, you know. I, we didn't know if we'd be able to find these witnesses. And, and so many of them, they told us things that we never expected them to tell us, never expected them to say. So it was, it was extremely eye-opening for us as well. Caro, was there a, just on that, was there an interview that you had or maybe there was a stage of all of this where you thought, oh, I don't know if this is really going anywhere, and then all of a sudden one particular interview that you have just makes you go, okay, this we're onto something here. Look, I'm going to be totally honest. I knew we were onto something very early on, mm. but there was one interview that opened a really big door for us. Because we were tearing our hair out about how, because this would never happen in, the, in this day, day and age, right? This happened that the police get up within a handful of hours after the, the fire's just been bloody put out. It's just been extinguished. Mm. And the police get up and tell the world, it's an electrical fault, we know what it is, case closed, nothing else to see here. That just, that would be so grossly inappropriate now, but then it was too. It was far too quick. How, how could they come to that determination so quickly without speaking, even speaking and interviewing to people who were there that night. It just, it didn't add up. But we were tearing our hair out about who was this detective that did that, that stood in front of the camera, who was named in the media as leading the investigation and said this, just closed it all down so quickly. And his name was Doug Knight. And he, he died before, by the time we started making this program. So that was incredibly frustrating. We were never going to be able to talk to him. But who on earth was he? And it was very difficult to find information out about him, but it was when we sat down with the sergeant that was assisting the coroner for the first and only inquest that was very hastily convened. His name's Colin Wedderburn. And I asked him, you know, who is this bloke? Because no one else would tell me about Doug Knight. Everyone got very uncomfortable when I'd ask them about him. And it was Colin Wedderburn who took a deep breath and he told me, well, he was a fixer. And a fixer was someone who would move evidence, hide evidence, delete evidence, um, who was corrupt, a corrupt police officer. And that was when the door really opened for us. We thought, okay, something something mm. really very off looks like it has occurred here. And if we have a sergeant, a member of the police force, who's telling us this on camera, and then it was backed up by several others who supported that information, then... Is this, is this part of the answer? So, Caro, it, I mean, I'm three episodes in. It, it is quite damning, all that evidence. What happens now? Can the police open a new investigation or an inquest in, into this now? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And I'm getting receiving messages from people all over the world, from America and England, um, asking what's going on two years mm. later. Is there a new inquest? Because... All these, police, all these people are calling for one um, and one hasn't been established yet. The New South Wales coroner hasn't announced whether there will be a new one, but she did order the police to review all of the evidence 
um, after someone with legal standing who I can't name wrote to her, the coroner, and asked for a new inquest to be called. So the police were then sent off to conduct a review of their evidence and report back, I believe. There was a strike force um, set up. And it's, it's now with the coroner to, to, to announce whether there will be a, a new inquest or not. And a second, look, a second inquest or even a third inquest would, would not be controversial. There are many, many historical matters that are resolved where a second or third inquest has been called. Um, you know, the fact that we have a multi-fatality event, seven people who died that's so unresolved, and all these witnesses that weren't called or who were omitted and weren't included in that first inquest the National Crime Authority said that first inquest was, was unsatisfactory. It was inadequate. They called the police investigation grossly inadequate. I mean, it really is screaming for another inquiry. And, you know, I, I spoke to Jenny Gobson only just this morning. We're in touch and we, we still speak. Mm. And, and, and she wants to know. She's saying, I haven't heard anything. I, is there, I want a new inquest. I, she wasn't even there for the first inquest. You know, she, she, she was a witness and lost a whole family and she wasn't even at that first inquest, which is damning mm-hmm. in itself. Yeah. Hey, yeah, imagine Caro, being what, that voiceless. Oh. So, Caro, what were they... My, I was just trying to work out, was, was it going to be up for tender, Luna Park itself, or was the land going to be sold? Like, what, why, what, what was the agenda behind it if, mm. if they actually closed Luna Park? Yes, so I think you're there in episode three there, the final episode. That's when it takes a turn and actually has a look at what happened after the fire. We have these fatalities. What actually happened to Luna Park after the fire? And there was this, obviously, this theory that has remained unresolved that it wasn't an electrical fault. There were were signs that it was arson and that the fire may have been deliberately lit in order to evict the businessmen who were running the park then because a notorious organised criminal wanted Luna Park for himself, and that was Abe Saffron. And Abe Saffron, you know, very notorious here in New South Wales particularly, but probably all over Australia, people would know that name. And there was information that he wanted Luna Park for himself. He tried to acquire it but hadn't. And arson was a tool of his. It was in his tool belt. There had been an inquest into these suspicious fires around Sydney that were linked back to him uh, or businesses he was attached to. And was this another one of, of, of an arson connected to Ab Saffron? And, di- and did he do this and, and that he, he got these bikies to light this fire um, and it went dreadfully wrong? People died. They did, people, children weren't meant to die. So that was the theory because what happened after the fire was that, of course, the, the people who, the businessmen who were running it, lost the park and the tender was awarded by the government through, through quite a peculiar process, a very peculiar tender process when, you, when we investigated it. It was eventually awarded, um, not to the company that <laughs> was publicised as having won it. There was a third round and all of a sudden it was awarded to a surprise new company um, and that Abe Saffron's relatives were involved in that company. So it's a really peculiar, you know, a classic Sydney property development um, saga there that we explored as well. Um, that's very murky and very uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to the best of the run home with Joel and Fletch. Don't forget you can catch us live in the afternoons, Monday to Friday. Alternatively, catch us on the podcast through Spotify and Apple Podcasts, social media, TikTok, Twitter and Instagram at Joel Fletch SEN. Thanks for sharing a part of your day with us. Uh, We'll catch you next time.